Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. It's rarely a good sign when the captain of a ship jumps overboard and says, You're on your own, guys! As he splashes into the water. In the early 1840s, the U.S. government did the equivalent to the settlers and pioneers of the Florida Territory. The you're on your own, guys part is the Armed Occupation Act. Essentially, with the regulars pulling out and with the Florida militia pulling out, the task for defending one's homestead fell right back to the homestead owner. At our remove, it may seem that this was most heartless on the government's part. Perhaps the politicians assessed that the army had lowered the threshold for violence down to a sufficient level that the individual homesteader could defend himself. And who were these homesteaders that they left behind? Some had this curious designation of cracker. Was this a disaster in the making? We'll find out. Joining us again to make sense of all this is Jesse Marshall, one of our self-taught resident experts on all things Seminole Wars. Jesse Marshall, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Well, thank you, Patrick. In another episode, I described Congress as making a necessity out of virtue. This was in regard to having the militia as a primary force of defense for the nation. In the latter years of the Second Seminole War, however, the government finally made a virtue out of necessity and decided to pull the troops out while lauding, while lauding the people's ability to defend themselves. And for those who'd like to join them in Florida to defend themselves and their community, the government offered a sweetener. These were both game changers. What do you make of it, Jesse? The real game changer in the conduct of the war was by 1840, Congress was pointing out that an armed occupation of the Florida wilderness was going to be more successful than this attempt to fight tactical battles to defeat the Seminoles in one fell blow, what they called the campaigning system, campaigning with the intent of fighting a decisive battle. But instead, if they have armed occupation of the wilderness region with armed settlers in the manner of the Pennsylvania and Western Virginia settlers in the area of the American Revolution, driving the Shawnee and so forth out of those zones, this is what they thought would be more successful. So there was an encouragement after 1840 by the federal government for Florida citizens and any citizen of the United States to take up abode in the contested borderlands. This culminated in the Armed Occupation Act of 1840. 42. But even a couple years earlier, U.S. Army units were issuing rations, weapons, and even ammunition to settlers that were willing to move into the contested borderlands and essentially build fortified cabins and hold out. And basically, it was advancing the militia into the Seminoles' own countryside. Now, interestingly, according to Captain Sprague in his history of the war in 1848, Captain Wilcox of the 5th Infantry, etc., mentions that given the circumstances, arms were provided to all of the settlers that came into these districts, white and black. This was not necessarily uh, all out of of order because in 1840 there was a territorial law that had allowed for slave owners to arm their slaves given the emergency of the 
continuation of Indian raids and so forth. To what extent that was engaged in, I know not. Of course, free blacks even, and slaves, of course, were entirely exempted from militia duty. However, under federal law, militia and volunteer officers, and even regular officers, were allowed to have servants who were kept on the rolls of their units to receive rations and bridge and so forth. The Florida militia muster rolls of the period show at least a dozen or more that I've seen Negro servants that were enrolled in the units in federal service as servants. Also, some units from the South utilized Negro slaves or even free blacks as musicians. For example, in Major Cooper's battalion of Georgians at the Battle of Fort Cooper, the muster rolls of that battalion show that the bulk of the battalion's musicians were Negroes. Probably the slaves of the officers, maybe some freemen, it's not really clear. So there were Negroes in federal service, although not as armed combatants. The Armed Occupation Act, as finally formulated in 1842, offered a whole quarter section of land, which is essentially a square quarter mile, to any citizen of the United States that claimed it in Florida. All he had to do was settle on that land. He had to have a weapon. If he farmed it for five years and didn't abandon his improvements, he would be given an absolute patent on that land. The act was considered a great boon. There were a large number of Alachua County folks who had braved the pain of the war years. By mid-1842, it settled in central Hernando County around Brooksville, Chuckachetti area, the old Seminole town of Chuckachetti. One of the last casualties of the Seminole War was the wife of Richard Crum, one of the armed occupation settlers. She was ambushed and killed, I believe it was near the close of 1842, one of the last victims of the Seminole War. There were weapons issued prior, and whether those arms were retrieved by the federal authorities subsequently, I know not. The Armed Occupation Act was available to anyone. If you were in New York City and you wanted a quarter section of Florida land, you just grab your gun and come on down. Of course, the, there was not like a flood of people that were lining up to do this from around the country because there was still plenty of Seminoles in Florida, at least 150, and even 10 Seminoles in a war party could prove incredibly destructive to the outlying settlements. The Seminole Scare of 1849 and the Third Seminole War, Third Seminole War was very destructive, and the Seminoles probably never had any war parties greater than 20 or 30 strong. So even a small number of Seminoles was enough to sort of convince people not to invest in Florida land. But if you weren't afraid of that and you wanted that property, then you could get it for free, a patented quarter section. One of the more successful was William Hope in the Brooksville area. He settled there. He expanded. He bought land surrounding his original claim in the later decades. Again, by 1840, direct federal aid was withdrawn, and what was provided in lieu of it was a guarantee of patent rights on the land if you maintained yourself in these. Evidently, a lot of the, particularly the settlers around Hernando County in Central Florida, Many of them had been the recipients of the direct federal military aid in Alachua County and, and moving into the more southerly areas of Alachua and northern Hernando County. That direct military aid was withdrawn when the federal troops left, but again, it was replaced by the federal legislation of the Armed Occupation Act. It said, well, if you stay there for five more years, you're not going to be a squatter. We're not going to give you food and ammunition anymore, but you won't be a squatter. And in fact, you picked the best spot you have your pick. There's not a lot of competition. Pick the best spot you want and we'll register it as long as you have a weapon and are willing to defend it in lieu of federal troops, essentially. It seemed to work. It brought a great deal of the early settlers into South Florida. Settlers were very unsettled about the continued, even though the Seminoles mostly retreated 
way to the south, south of Lake Okeechobee. They would still range up into the northern Florida's statements from the 1850s that people would meet Seminoles wandering around, and it would make them nervous because they knew if there was another Seminole outbreak, these farms are mostly scattered and they would be subject to attack. The number of farms destroyed during the Florida War between 1835 and 42 isn't currently known, but if you read through the newspapers at the time, you pull up almost any date and you'll find a notice of a family being massacred by Seminoles. The Seminoles fought, like most Indians, they fought wars of extermination. Some people held that against them. There were occasions where, usually when the militia would have a chance, they would use extermination tactics as well. There were occasions where Seminole women and children evidently were shot down in cold blood or captured. For the most part, that doesn't seem to have been common. The regular troops certainly didn't do that to any great degree. Even the militia didn't seem to relish that sort of bloodshed. When the wars were over, the, the crackers that had settled in South Florida became friends with Seminoles. They would show each other their war wounds and so forth, as the Englishman Ballantyne speaks of serving at Fort Brook in the 1840s. I'll compare notes on the war. And the crackers, by the way, were a particular people, mostly from the Georgia pine woods that had settled into North Florida. You say Florida cracker today, it, it seems to be a general reference to it, a rural Floridian perhaps, but it seems to have been a very particular group of the settlers in Florida in the 1830s and 40s. There's a lot of theories about the origin of the name, that it's the cracking of their, their whips, using oxen carts and cracking their whips to keep the oxen moving. There's corn cracker. They crack corn, whatever that reference may refer to. The earliest reference to the term cracker regarding people in Georgia, North Florida that I've seen is from 1783 by a British official in Georgia who refers to the crackers as being people that has come south from Virginia, perhaps the descendants of former indentured servants and white slaves from Virginia. Generally, on the exterior level, they were noted as being extraordinarily independent-minded. They did not engage in commerce of the commercial kind. They used barter. One federal officer says they didn't like to use cash, cared little for it. There's frequent references to them being essentially illiterate and or uh, almost barbaric in their situation, but there's comments from the 1840s that they were mostly what would be called today primitive Baptists or hard-shell Baptists. That particular people derived a succession from the Waldenses, uh, a people from Europe that had never been Catholic and consequently were never Protestants, and so they were considered sort of religious dissenters, so that that may in part color some of the commentary about them by some of the 19th century commentators, particularly those that supported a social progressivism where the crackers generally seem to oppose novelties of modernism to a certain degree. Not entirely, but at least to a certain degree. An excellent book I'd highly recommend is Cracker Times and Pioneer Lives. It was edited by Professor Denham, maybe within the last 20 years, and it's based on the memoir of a fellow that grew up among the crackers of Alachua and Columbia counties in the 1830s and 40s. One of the main points he makes is that the crackers didn't make towns, they didn't make settlements. Their neighbors would be half a mile or more away from each other. They frequently didn't settle along main trade routes. The more out of the way the countryside, the more likely you would be to find their farms since they didn't engage in the customary market agriculture. In fact, there seems to have been a predilection toward cattle, stock raising, whether they settled on previously abandoned lands. There seems to have been some of that because Indian fields are shown on some of the 1840s survey maps 
They were done by government agents after the Florida war concluded. And it's not infrequent that you'll see that some of the armed occupation claims will encompass some of these Indian old fields. So if it's already cleared, they're going to go ahead and claim it because they won't have to clear it themselves. Also, Dr. Mott of the Army in 1836, traveling through North Florida, mentioned that the crackers not only appreciated the regular troops bivouacking near their settlements to scare away the Indians, but they also appreciated it because the regular troops cleared vast stretches of forest. When they bivouacked, the troops would just chop trees mercilessly. They would build enormous fire pyres every night to surround their bivouacs to create illumination to prevent night attacks, etc. So after just a few weeks bivouacked in a particular spot, you know, a battalion of a few hundred regulars could clear several acres with their axes working all day long. Those clearings would then become likely for some farmer to settle on subsequently. Florida being a pine lands, mostly from the descriptions of the time, the piney woods were not particularly densely forested, and it wouldn't have taken a pioneer all that much trouble to clear an acre. Although, from references by travelers in the 1830s, Southerners generally didn't like to pull stumps. Uh, when they cleared fields, they would often just girdle the tree, like the Indians did the same thing. They would girdle the tree, and it would take it time to die. But the important thing was to eliminate its canopy so that sunlight would come in and they would just plant their corn around tree stumps. Many of the military officers being New England men would find that ridiculous because in New England, the farmer would bear no effort to remove every single rock and every single stump on his field. But one of the things that's not being kept in mind is that New England was long settled for hundreds of years by then. So if you owned a farm in New England, your meets and bounds are very constrained. Whereas the southern farmer, I mean, it may be two miles before you get another neighbor. So even if you have to plow around a bunch of stumps, you could still plant more corn than any New England farmer, even if you plant around the stumps, because there's no impediment to expanding your field. It's just, you know, your own effort or inclination. There's an Englishman named Buckingham and his uh, tour of the slave states of America in 1837-38. He published his account of it. And he mentions traveling in Georgia. And he talks about the common Georgians around Macon and the country people. It's interesting to see that he refers to the crackers as being a very specific country sort. Mentions that when they came into Macon, they saw these people that they were dressed almost like they'd come out of history. They were wearing old types of coats without collars, similar to the 1700s hundreds and seemed rather shabby and threadbare and beards and long hair and floppy hat. He asked, who are those folks? Because they seemed to be a people because they were all sort of dressed alike. And he said, oh, those are the crackers. In the 1840s, I mentioned the Hardshell Baptists, and I say that because there's a, uh, the name's escaping me, but uh, he was either a Methodist or a missionary Baptist preacher that was in Florida trying to start up some churches and in a specific reference, he makes that the crackers were principally hardshell or primitive Baptists. And in the 1830s, there was a sort of division between the primitive Baptists and the missionary Baptists. At this time period, it's very difficult to fix upon who was a cracker in 1830 and who wasn't. I myself have never seen a specific statement. I've met people who are of cracker descent and consider themselves crackers of old times. But in reading 19th century sources, I've yet to find a specific statement where somebody says, I'm a cracker, 
or somebody says, Mr. James Jones is a cracker. It was a derogation, an epithet that was used to describe a certain people. We should keep in mind it was just one of many. Many Floridians were referred to as sandlopers or conks, conks being principally fishermen in South Florida. Sandlopers, you have the Minorcans and St. Augustine, etc. So there are a large number of different groups of people who historically have been amalgamated together. And it's very difficult to, at this date and time, without more specific evidence to separate them, if you understand my point. It strikes me that the crackers were a minority, even among the country people of the 1830s in Florida and Georgia, even though in more recent decades, the term is more widely used. Because I do a great deal more reading than discussion of history, it does me an enormous amount of good to go through some of these details to discuss them because it's a sort of the winnowing process. See what details I personally have almost no knowledge of what body of evidence that I have studied is actually interesting to people, if you get my meaning. <laughs> because I read a great deal. I only read 19th century newspapers and sources anymore, and I don't really, because that's something I do, I don't know which body of all that is really of interest today, because I don't uh, you know, again, I appreciate the questions that you pose because it gives me an idea of what the unknown is, I guess. Yeah, that's right. I, I know that uh, when I was a youth, Patrick, I'll just mention this. I used to read um, military history as a youth because I was confused by tactical references, believe it or not. Particularly reading about the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. I probably saw some movies, and then I get the books at the library, and there'd be these references, and I had no idea what they meant. There was no internet when I was a kid, so... Uh, but the downtime, I would read as much as I could, not because I enjoyed reading or uh, anything, but because I was really curious to figure out what this stuff is. And one of the things I realized as a reenactor and talking to the public, when I was a kid, I knew what a battalion was, and a squadron of cavalry, and at least in the ancient sense, right? But the public today has no understanding of these technical terms. And what I guess has driven me to a real interest in the militia system is in the 1830s, every citizen knew all that stuff because it was your civic duty rather than paying taxes. And today, the less you know, the better, I guess. <laughs> I find that intriguing. Missy Marshall, thanks for joining us once again for The Seminole Wars. Yes, it's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rudy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.